Welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento, where we talk to anyone working in the food industry to give you a behind the scenes look of your favorite dining destinations here in our city. I'm your host, Max Connor, and I'm joined by no one today because Neil has COVID. Neil has come down with COVID and has been pretty laid up for the last week. So Neil will be a part of the interview, but you won't hear him here in our introduction or in our close and some of the interludes we're going to do in today's episode, which is a bummer because Neil set up today's interview, which was really, really fun. And it was with head chef and owner Jonathan Kirksick of Caccio, which is over in the pocket. It's a little neighborhood Italian spot that has a small menu, small restaurant, but really big flavors. And what I love about Jonathan is he's a Sacramento chef through and through. He's worked all over the city and surrounding areas, but he's also a guy with just no pretense, no BS. He's not worried about recognition. He's not worried about having a big name. He opened a neighborhood spot in a strip mall in the pocket because it was close to his house and he wanted to cook good food and just get to know his customers and just do what he wants to do. And it's pretty cool to see how well he and his wife are doing at their spot, Caccio. So with that, let's get to our conversation with me and Neil and the head chef and owner of Caccio, Jonathan Kirksick. Jonathan Kirksick, thank you so much for being here on the Dine One Six. Thanks for having me. So we usually almost always open our interview with just asking, what was food like for you growing up? What did food mean in your house as a kid? Uh, it was basically the time for family to sit down at the table at the, at the end of the day and kind of have a little get together. There was times where, you know, me and my brother would goof off and we'd get in trouble at the table and dad wanted us to be serious about eating and I wasn't always into that, so I'd goof around and remember one time he stabbed me with the fork because I was screwing off, and I stabbed him back, and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both sitting there with, you know, tines bleeding from our hand, but it was fun. No pain, no gain. No, I mean, you know, you got to, you know, stand up for yourself at times. Yeah. What kind of food did you eat growing up? Uh, just a little bit of everything. I mean, mom cooked a lot of casseroles. Dad would do the same but he, they both loved cooking steak although my mom was always medium well or well done my dad finally convinced her medium rare is the way to go she still goes medium but you know simple food I mean we didn't grow up with a ton of money so a lot of like I said casseroles hamburger rice taco salad was always a big hit mm. got it so you in an Italian restaurant so you, but you didn't necessarily have the big Italian family with extravagant Sunday night Italian dinners no not at all it's I mean I just my first cooking job was at original Pete's Pizza downtown on 20th and J yeah and then I got a job out of high school working at DMV it was a nine-month temporary job and realized real quick I'm not good at sitting at a desk <laughs> so I went back and got a job at Paragary's and kind of went from there so your first job was at Original Pizza. Was that in high school? That was right out, well, yeah, right out of high school. So, I mean, and I think in like three or six months that I got promoted to kitchen manager and I kind of never really looked back. Mm. When did you realize that cooking was what you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Was that a little bit earlier on or did it come later? It was probably when I was working at Paragary's downtown. One of the servers there, her boyfriend at the time, Rick Mahan, was opening another Paragary's out in Folsom. 
And I interviewed with him, and I was at that time I was thinking of going to culinary school, and he's like, well, do you want to pay to learn, or would you rather get paid to learn? I'm like, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I said, I'd <laughs> rather get paid to learn. So I kind of just stuck my nose to it and jumped around restaurants from there. So you never went to any culinary school? No. Fascinating. Full of hard knocks. That's what I, I it's funny. I, I've seen, I've seen chefs with both sides learn that way. What, what do you, what advantages do you think you had learning on the job outside of being paid versus paying? Well, that's the biggest thing, but I think going to culinary school, you learn a lot more of the fine aspects of it, but you also learn more of the French stylists because that's typically what they teach. So you learn a lot of the, um, terms I like, first couple times people said to shift not I'm like what the hell is that <laughs> right you figured it I mean you, you already knew how to do it you just didn't know what the technical term was so on that end I think that was better but at one member one time I had um interns coming through they had no idea how to break down a chicken or a salmon <clears throat> and I'm like ask the instructor I said don't send me any more of your students I go they don't know what they're doing mm. he's like what do you mean I go if they can't break down a chicken he goes well they've seen it done I go how much do they pay you a year for them to go to school? X amount of students, and you can't buy a chicken for one person to break down? He's like, well, I'm like, you're getting paid too much. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd rather have somebody that has a want and a desire rather than a piece of paper that says they graduated. No, that makes complete sense. And learning from the bottom, I feel like you don't, like you said, the prep work, the the hard stuff, cutting the veggies, getting everything ready, that makes a lot more sense. I think you appreciate it more. You don't have the expectations of, I graduated, now I'm going to be a chef somewhere. I also think it's good to learn how a restaurant actually works. As we've learned in school, like school is not real life, and I think co cooking school is not the same as a restaurant. Am I fair in that assessment? Absolutely. I mean, it's you're not timed on, can you do your brunoise in 15 minutes, or can you do this in X amount of time? It's it's an immediacy. You have to have everything done and ready to go. Mm. And when you tell somebody, you tell the chef it's going to be up in two minutes, it better be up in two minutes. Yeah. So Is cooking then, did you find you had sort of a talent for it and a talent for flavors, or do you view it in your experience as more a craft that just if you do it and learn and learn and learn? I, for me, it was probably more of a craft. The more I, the more I was doing, the more I was learning, the more I was reading. I mean, for years, I was just a sponge on books and watching cooking shows. And I think now the cooking shows have gotten too far away from what they could have done. Now they're just glamming everything up. How so? So how, what, how would you like to see a cooking show? I mean, if they were to do like more of a, a reality show, but I mean a real reality show where there's cameras there, but they're actually watching what's going on in the kitchen mm -hmm. and kind of commenting on how that is. Or at the end of the night or end of the shift where they would sit down and kind of hash things out like, why did we do this? Why did we do that? What did we learn from that? I think that would be more interesting for a lot of people that maybe want to get into the field. Absolutely. The, the learning aspect of what yeah, they're doing. Absolutely. You actually get to see and why things are done the way they are, as opposed to just being told that's why they are. One thing I always get tripped up on on cooking shows is that them cooking a single dish. Like that must be fun to cook one dish, whereas in a restaurant you're cooking <clears throat> 42 dishes in one oh, night. Oh, yeah. And, and for, for me especially, I mean, I'm – I'm a one-man show in the back. I have one person up front that helps me. She does the desserts and salads and some appetizers. But aside from everything else, it's all me. And, I mean, it's a small restaurant. It's 31 seats. But there's times where 
I'm looking at the ticket rail and I'm, I'm working on one and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get the next five out in mm -hmm. a fast manner. Yeah, I don't think you learn that in cooking school. That you don't learn in cooking no. school. That's, that's <laughs> definitely trial by fire. So from here, we wanted to have Jonathan sort of run through his Sacramento resume for us, which he joked is literally about four pages long. So I'll speed up the audio here so we can hear Jonathan like the Micro Machines guy, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, my apologies. That's pretty much a millennial-only reference. So Gen Z, Boomers, Gen X may not even know what I'm talking about. But let's hear Jonathan run through his resume super, super fast. So Paragary's two different, well, two different things of 20th and N. That is in at Viva's, Esquire Grill twice. A couple of places that nobody would remember or even know about. Piatti's was... I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. But seriously, the number of places Jonathan's hit in his over 30-year career is wild. Paragary's two times. He's been at Biba, Esquire Grill, Piatti's for a long time. Then he went up to Napa at Bistro Don Giovanni's. Then he came back and worked at Piatti's and Paragary's again. Mask up in El Dorado Hills. Shortston at Ilfranio. Then he took over as the food and beverage coordinator at the Sheraton. From there, he jumped over to the Citizen and was the chef de cuisine at the Grange when the hotel opened. Then he moved to San Francisco, worked at a couple hotels there. And then as his kids grew up a little bit, he got out of the restaurant industry to have a nine to five and worked at a food research and development company. He said he loved that for the first two years, but then felt like he was selling his soul as they suddenly were just trying to find ways to add stuff to food to fluff it up and make it cheaper. It wasn't really making food anymore, he said. When his kids grew up, he came back to Sacramento, jumped back into the restaurant scene with Selens in El Dorado, then Oboe, and then at Esquire Grill again. And it was here where all those years of working with so many different people would land him a serendipitous meeting with a former chef he had worked with who just sold his restaurant and was maybe looking for someone to invest in. And he asked Jonathan, aren't you tired of working for other people? And Jonathan said, sure, but I don't really have a way to open my own restaurant. And that's when this former colleague told Jonathan this. You find a spot, he goes, I'll put up the money. Wow. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I'm serious. He goes, I'll be your partner. He goes, you run it, you do everything. He goes, I just get a percentage, you pay back the loan, and then after five years, you buy me out. That's a great deal. Yep, except my wife and I bought him out in two years instead of five. I was just going to ask you guys. Gonna be my next question. That's amazing. So just before, just before the pandemic basically hit and was starting to shut us down, we ended up buying him out. So you've kind of like bounced around to some of the major hot spots and, and players in town. Where did your love for Italian food begin? Probably at Paragus. I like the simplicity of Italian food. You're not trying to coat everything with a sauce. You're not trying to make anything crazy. It's just plain, simple food. What's and your, I, sorry, go ahead. No, and that, that's just how I cook. I like plain simple food. I don't like anything that's got like more than six or seven ingredients. If it's like 15 ingredients on the plate, you're looking at like, well, where am I supposed to start? And mm. I mean, if it looks too pretty to eat, why am I plating it? I don't want to plate anything with tweezers. <laughs> <laughs> Have you plated things with tweezers? Have you been to places where you had to do that life? No. Okay. I, mostly because I kind of refuse to. <laughs> So you mentioned you worked, you worked in hotels, you worked in food R&D. What did those experiences, you know, outside of a regular just restaurant kitchen teach you? Um, definitely more time management and scheduling. And then in the hotel side, there's a lot more HR than I ever wanted to do. Mm. Although kind of always had to do a little bit as you're in a restaurant setting because you're just kind of playing multiple roles. Yeah. But now being the owner, I mean – 
excuse me, my wife deals with the majority of the paperwork where I just deal with the cooking aspect. And I'm grateful for her, but I mean, she takes on a lot. Yeah. I just get to do the maintenance, which is always fun. Like earlier today, I was having to rip apart and redo my kitchen faucet. At home or in the restaurant? No, at the restaurant. Okay. It's like <laughs> something breaks. It's like you got to fix it. Yeah. A chef yeah. has to wear many wear Just like many owning hats. a house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had one night I had to get up on the roof in the middle of service and fix my exhaust fan and then get back downstairs, wash up real quick and keep putting out orders. Mm. It's, <laughs> it keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. So what do you still love about it after being in restaurants for such a long time? Because I think 30 years, something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of there's I mean, you just mentioned it. People listening to this might be like, that sounds stressful in 30 years of doing that. It is. But now it's like I get to dictate how I want to do things. We went to a four day work week as opposed to working five, seven days a week, being open all the time. And that's been a life changer for us. Mm. I mean, we're still paying the bills. We're still getting paid. We're not hurting for anything. It's been awesome. And I still love in the fact that it's interaction with customers every day. And yeah. like right now we're kind of like cheers in the pocket. Like we have regulars that come in same days, every time sit in the same seats, every time, or they call them my seats. And we're kind of funny, <laughs> right? It's like, well, I'm sorry, somebody's there ahead of you. You're going to have to wait <laughs> if you want your seats, but it's nice. in the fact, like I said, you, we get to dictate how we want to do things now. That's great. How old are your kids now? 18 and 17. So the 18 year old, I just took him to dropped him off in Texas this last week. He wanted to get away from mom and dad. Makes sense. I think every 18 year old wants to do that. Now, do your kids like cooking? They do now. I mean, I tried getting them to cook, but I told them I don't want them to follow me because <laughs> it takes, I mean, working in the restaurants like this, you know, you don't see your family all that often. Yeah. And when it comes to holidays, don't see them at all. You know, because I was working all of them. That's one of the nice things, too, about owning the restaurant. We don't open any major holidays. We're closed. We're with our family. I do not do Mother's Day brunch. <laughs> I don't do Easter brunch. <laughs> I don't do New Year's Eve dinner because other restaurants I've worked for, it's like those holidays, they take their same menu, jack up prices. Right. And gouge people. I'm like, why? Because you can? That doesn't seem fair. And then if it's a special occasion, it's like, you pissed off half the people you started, you know, because like brunch, you do it once mm-hmm. a year. You're not going to be good at it. Mm-hmm. No. I feel like you have to do brunch once a year to remember to not do brunch. That's why I just don't do it. <laughs> I mean, we've kicked it around and I've told her, I'm like, if I do brunch, it's going to be a brunch menu that people are going to go, well, where's my eggs? And I'm like, they're in there, but you're not, I'm not doing your ovaries. I'm not doing over medium. I'm not doing short order cook stuff. Yeah. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. Don't come back. If you do, great. How many items do you normally have on your menu at the restaurant at a time? Uh, and, and how do you choose what comes and goes? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming with the product. And definitely whatnot. try and keep it seasonal as possible. Um, there's a few men, few things that have never come off the menu. Like, I have always had a beet salad on the menu in one way or another. I've always had our orquete and sausage on the menu. The only thing that's ever changed in that is I went from broccoli rob to mustard greens, Mm. only because broccoli rob certain times of the year just comes in too yellow. It just doesn't look good. So I change it up. And then a prawn dish that I have on the menu that my wife won't let me take off. She's like, well, you got to have prawns on. And I didn't want to have it on to begin with. Mm. She's like, well, we have to have some kind of seafood on the menu. I'm like, okay, fine. So I cooked it for her. And I said, well, how's this? 
She's like, yep, that's it. I'm like, okay. So it's been on the menu for four years. What's the most adventurous dish you've put on the menu? Mm, nothing really is too adventurous because, I mean, I have like, such a small kitchen. I got it. The most adventurous would probably be, I mean, we did a catering for somebody this last week and they wanted tomahawk steaks. And so it's a 23 pound rack of seven bones. And I don't really even have a pan I can cook anything that big in. So I used the flat top to sear it off and then finished it in the oven. But adventure wise, I mean, nothing really too crazy. You keep things mostly traditional? I, I try to, or do a spin on things. I mean, there was times where I was making duck confit tortellini. Mm. I mean, I, I like that. Sounds good. It, it was good, but they're a pain to make. And yeah. I was doing it for the restaurant. And also, Grange did their 10 year anniversary, and I got invited to come back and do a dish. That's the dish I did. So I had me, both kids, my wife, the business partner, all of us back there late night making tortellini so I could take them down there the next day. I actually think I remember that night. So did you know when you were going to open your own place, did you know immediately I'm going to do Italian or were you yes. tempted? Yeah. We, I, we knew immediately. We were, I mean, again, as small as it was before we changed out a lot of the equipment in the kitchen and it was a six burner stove and I'm like, and a single oven, I'm like, well, we're going to do pasta. Just one in our neighborhood, everything out there is fast food or two different three different pizza restaurants that are mm -hmm. still all fast food. So it's like there was no sit-down real dining in our area. The restaurant that we bought was the sit-down restaurant in the area, but it became a special occasion restaurant for people in the neighborhood. And I didn't want to be a special occasion restaurant. I wanted to be a restaurant. People would come in every day. Kids come in, flip-flops, come in off the river. If you want to get dressed up, you, we can do that too. But we wanted to keep it unpretentious and family-oriented, I guess. So tell us a little bit about your your wife and your guys' relationship of meeting and both working in restaurants and then uh, actually working together. Well, so we met at the Citizen Hotel, and shortly after I we started opened the hotel, I ended up going through a divorce with my first wife, who the two kids are with. But so Katie and I met at the hotel, and we kind of hit it off. And I was going through divorce. So I had I was blinders on. I had no idea she was interested in me at all. And then. I became interested in her, and as the divorce came went through, which was a year later, but we started dating and kind of went from there. I mean, but she's 10 years younger than me. She's super driven and a lot more focused on the minutia than I am, which is a good balance because I'm a little bit bigger picture, just want to, you know, I'll put a menu together and I'll go, this is going to work or it's not going to work, and we can change it in a heartbeat. And she's like, wait, wait, wait a second. We need to make it work now so we're not having to, you know, waste all the paper and waste my time, she, her time, sure. changing the menu, <laughs> updating the website, and all these other things. I'm like, okay, okay I, I get it. So she's been good for me in that side. And I think it's great that she has the hotel and restaurant background, and then she also was running banquets. So she does a lot of things behind the scenes that people just don't see. So she was involved in the restaurant as well at the Citizen? She, yeah. Okay. So she was the she was one of the front of the house managers, and then she ended up transferring to um, one of the sister hotels in San Francisco. And that's when I kind of transferred to San Francisco too. And we had an apartment down there, but still had a house up here because the kids, so I'd come back and forth. And yeah, she's been, I mean, she's been great for me. Yeah, it's so valuable. I mean, whether it's a wife or a good partner, I think for chef owners in particular who've worked their whole life, just head down in the kitchen, maybe creating menus, that sort of thing, to now suddenly 
running a business, right? And right. and uh, it goes beyond just looking at food costs, but uh, you know, rent and employees and well, and, all and of the it. nice thing is, so we both have the same common goal with the restaurant, but at the same time, she has her strengths, and her strengths are pretty much my weaknesses, and vice versa. I can do what she does, not as efficiently. Mm-hmm. She could do everything I do in the kitchen. She's like, I don't want to cook like that. She goes, when I cook, I want to be cooking at home, the glass of wine in hand, music playing and stuff. I'm like, that's what I want to do at work too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way, but but it, it's good in the fact that she understands the lifestyle of the restaurant. So it makes it easier for us to, I think, work together. So as you can hear, Jonathan and Katie working together has been a really good fit. It's hard to believe that the two of them and one other kitchen worker and a few front of house people run this amazing little Italian spot. But there is one thing that Jonathan and Katie don't entirely agree upon, and that's on expansion. Jonathan says he would love to open another restaurant, and he said Katie would rather they just keep focusing on Caccio. It's their home. It's not just their restaurant, but it's their personal dining room. Jonathan said if he could, he would open a wood fire pizza spot to make pizza how he would really like to have it. And when it comes to the future of Caccio, Jonathan said people often ask him, why not expand and make it bigger? He says that's not really something he's interested in. I don't want to have a 100 or 200 seat restaurant because yeah. if you have that many seats and you're not full, you're bleeding. And that's why I like the size of our restaurant now. And people always joked when the space next door to us was available, they're like, well, are you going to expand? We're like, um, no, because then it completely changes the dynamic of the restaurant as it is now. And I like the intimacy of the dining room yeah. as it is now. I mean, COVID actually forced us to do things we would we were never going to do. Like we never did takeout, but through COVID, we had to do takeout for just over a year. That was a challenge because it was just her and I, and we had to figure that out really quick because, you know, when you design menu, you design it to be on a plate, not in a box. Mm-hmm. So you still want to look good in a box when somebody opens it up. And a lot of food just doesn't translate that way. Yeah. 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 Either that or you're having, you're doing a, a hodgepodge of boxes. So you have a component here, a component here, here's your sauce, here's this, and they got to build it themselves when they get home. It's like, well, that's a waste of manpower too. I mean, right. or even just paper goods. Yeah, it's a waste of plastic solo cups and yeah, paper goods and yeah. And fifteen else. minutes later, it's not warm. You've been in your air conditioned car, like yeah, yeah. Figuring out something that can handle <clears throat> steam in a box, right, yeah. has to work because has yet to be discovered. Thank, <laughs> right. Thankfully, pasta does fairly yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of our biggest things we've done a few times is we'll do like a Sunday. We'll just pop up and say we're going to do lasagnas to go for a night. We didn't realize that we could probably make a living just selling lasagnas. <laughs> Once you made a name, yeah. Well, we did. We did one one night. We did just lasagnas, and I think we sold. It was at twenty dollars a piece. It was. Well, we did a fundraiser for a guy that we worked with. He passed away, so we we're donating everything to his family, and we ended up like sixty five hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah, just in lasagna. I was just, as you were saying that, I was like, I need to get on that list. Sunday yeah. night lasagna sounds yeah. delicious. It is, it, it's crazy. And we did another one for another friend of ours. She was having a hard time with trying to just get an SBA loan so she could pay rent. But the SBA was like, no, no, no. So we did a little fundraiser for her. And 
I thought I'd done plenty of lasagna because neither of us were really doing any of the social media. The lady was doing it herself. And then I posted saying, we're doing this for her. And it's going to go from 12 to 3. By 12.15, we were sold out. Oh, my gosh. Dang. It was insane. I mean, I was- <laughs> That's awesome support, though. I was packing yeah. them as people were waiting in line. I'm like, we're out, and there's still a line out the door. Wow. I'm like, I'll fire up the stove, and I'll cook you guys something else. I said, but I'm out of lasagna. They're like, that's okay. We'll come back. Well, that's awesome that you have that kind of followership. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about pasta. Do you guys make, is it all your pasta, homemade pasta? Is some of it homemade? Is it? I was making some homemade and it just became a bear to try and keep up with for, I mean, even on our small spot for the volume. So I just try and buy the best dried pasta I can buy. Yeah. So I have four main purveyors, Ital Foods, Produce Express, and then Allen Brothers, which was Del Monte Meats here in town. And that's pretty much it. Now, where can a home cook find any of those, or can they? Most of the stuff, the Etel Foods, you can always, you can almost always find it at like Nugget okay. or Whole Foods. Whole Foods has it. Cordy Brothers, of course, has it. Mm -hmm. So, what recommendations would you have for any home chefs when it comes to cooking pasta? Undercook your pasta. If it says it to cook it for nine to ten minutes, undercook it for three to four minutes, drain it, and then keep your pasta water. And as you finish your sauce. Put your pasta in the sauce and then a little bit of the pasta water and just kind of cook it through until your pasta is the texture you want it. Otherwise, you're going to have mushy pasta. What's one of your favorite pasta dishes? Did I have on the menu? No, just in general. It's probably going to be actually the one I have on the menu. It's either the cacio e pepe or the uh, orchete and sausage. I and love cacio e pepe. It, it's one of those ones that I love it, but I hate cleaning up after <laughs> and I well I mean when we first opened I was just using the old aluminum pans that we had uh -huh. and trying to clean cooked on pecorino cheese off oh. of those things even if you let them soak your stainless steel sponge is just a cheese ball oh, at the end of right. cleaning one of them so imagine doing 15 or 20 of them in a night now I've got stainless steel pans and they come clean a lot easier <laughs> What do you think people get wrong about Italian food? What drives you crazy when you go to a place, even a high-end Italian place that... They oversauce the shit out of all their pastas. I mean, it's one of my biggest pet peeves is your pasta, you're eating the dish for the pasta and the sauce is the accompaniment for the pasta. It's like us Americans, we don't eat a salad for the salad. We eat it for the damn ranch dressing. Right. <laughs> and and it's bacon. Like, and yeah. Cheese. It's, it's like... And eggs. You're not eating it for what it's supposed to be. <laughs> Yeah, no, that makes sense. You yeah. Know, I, 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 when I was up at Mask years back, you know, we'd talk about specials and the first thing, well, what's the sauce on that? Did you hear what I just described everything? That's going to be the sauce. Like, there's no, like, tomato sauce. And I'm like, no. Everything that's cooked is a part of the dish. Mm. And it all comes together. Yes. I like that. That's interesting because I do think so many people think of pasta dishes as pasta in a bowl slop a bunch of sauce on top of whatever type it is rather yeah. than like it's all it's all an incorporated dish yep. together like i mean i put on the menu we had the cacio e pepe and then i had meatballs as a side but people were always asking for spaghetti and meatballs i'm like that's not how they eat meatballs in italy they eat the pasta and the sauce that the meatballs were cooked in as a appetizer then they eat the meatballs as the entree they don't mix them together mm -hmm. 
people here just, you know, they want to simplify everything too too much to a point sometimes. Sure. They want everything in one bell swoop. Put it all in one. Give me the peanut butter and jelly in one jar. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect example. So I want, I want to go back to original pizza, and you mentioned the concept for your new restaurant. Are you a big pizza-making fan? I love making pizza. Yeah? Yeah. When did that start, and how did that become? At original pizza. Yeah. I mean, just you'd make the dough, you'd let it rise overnight in the walk-in, then you'd be in the next day, and you're cutting dough balls, rolling the dough, letting that proof, and then just the tactile feel of making that pizza. What's your favorite style to make? Or, or if you open the new restaurant, which, which direction would you go? I would love to do a wood-fired thin-crust pizza. And I think there's a lot of great thin-crust pizzas in town. But for me, I think they're all undercooked by like 30 seconds. I mean, when I pick it up, I want to be able to pick up a slice and hold it without it falling down all the toppings going to the pan. That's just, I mean, so a little crispier on the crust, I think, then it'd be fine. But again, not a lot of toppings. You would know. you go with the traditional Italian, like Neapolitan toppings, or would you probably. kind of go with your own play? No, I'd, I'd probably do a little bit of both. I mean, I like the Neapolitan style, but I also like playing with the ingredients that are going on top. And it could still have, like I said, the original flavors or intent, but be done a little differently. So you worked in Napa, you worked in the Bay Area some as well. What do you love about being a chef in Sacramento in particular? I don't think it's as pretentious in Sacramento as it is in Napa or the Bay Area. You know, people say, well, I worked this place, I worked this place. I don't really care where you've worked. How well do you cook? Can you do what needs to be done? I think the camaraderie of chefs in Sacramento is, a, I think, from my experience, is a lot tighter knit than it is in the other communities. I mean, when it's a small, very small pool, although it's getting bigger, you know, and I think there's been a lot done in the last few years to actually put us on the map, so to speak. Uh, but I've always said, people will say they've gone to San Francisco and the meal was excellent. It was better than anything they had in Sacramento. I'm like, well, is that because you made it an adventure or you made it a special occasion because that's where you were going? Right. As opposed to having the exact same dish made in town for $15 less. And how much of that product came from Sacramento Valley? Right, right exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the other big caveat. It's like, you realize the majority of everything they're using, we have closer, so it's not being shipped as far. Yeah. We were just talking about it yesterday after an interview with a chef of how tight-knit the community is and how it seems Michelin's come in and there's been a little more recognition in Sacramento, but post-COVID that, like, seems like everyone's really rooting for each other to, oh, yeah. to survive. And also, I mean, your resume is not uncommon where it's, like, the number of places you've worked in town since it's a relatively small, big city everyone's crossed paths and worked with each other at some point. And at so there's, point there is time, that camaraderie, you know, Yeah, there was an article a few years back in the B about how many chefs had come out of Paragary's alone. And it's, it was crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I worked with that person, that person, that person, that person, that person, or I crossed paths with that person. Like Patrick Mulvaney and I, he was at Paragary's, I was at Piatti's and then we basically switched positions <laughs> He went to Piatti's, I went to Paragary's, and then we never worked together, but we knew each other. Yeah. It was just, it's one of those weird little things in the industry. I didn't realize Mulvaney had Paragary's in his background. That's uh -huh. interesting. Not surprising at the same time. Yeah, he was, I want to say he was there in 94, 93, 94, something like that, and then went to Piatti's, and then Piatti's in Roseville, and then I think shortly after that opened B&L. I love B&L, too. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Have you been there? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The look you were giving like, me, I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> just stays out there for a second. <laughs> it's been a minute since I've been there. But, I mean, I have three young kids, so my my, avail- my availability to go out for a nice dinner is Slim rare. Dinner. Yeah, rare. I know, and that's the other problem we're finding now, me and my wife, is like, so we're closed Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Who's open Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday? Yeah. There are very few spots, but the few spots that are open do really well. I, I went to Hawks last week and got their fried chicken on Monday nights. It was packed. We were there last night. Yeah? It was really good, yeah. We were meeting with uh, the gentleman that owns Atchison Wine, Brian Scott. He and I, we've known each other since, I don't know, we were eight or nine years old. But we've, like, through COVID, we were doing meal kits, sending them to his Atchison so that people would go in there, buy wine, and buy meal kit from us. It was either, like, lasagna or it was a package of sauce and dry pasta. All they'd have to do is cook the pasta and heat up the sauce, and their dinner's done. Oh, that's an awesome pairing to do. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like when people work together for those kind of sort of things. Absolutely. Yeah, we, last night we were trying to figure out we got to do a uh, – we did a silent auction for Christian Brothers where – He's going to do the wine. I'm going to do the food for six people. And I think it went for like $4,200. Oh, wow. Like wow. I was like, wow, I didn't expect that. If somebody, you know, did $100 or $200, I'm like, great. They made, they raised money. But when I heard it was like four, four grand, I was like, now what do we cook for? <laughs> right. Let's get out the truffles. <laughs> right. right. Bring out the truffles and the duck confit, tortellini. Bring yeah, out, you know, it's so. like, holy cow. What does that mean to you? I mean, it's been clear in talking to you how everything from the small dining room in a neighborhood restaurant in a strip mall to raising money for friends and the community and people who need it, that part of being a chef and being a restaurateur is about community for you. Yeah, it's about, I mean, it's about community. It's about giving back. It's about taking care of your neighbors, so to speak. I yeah. Mean, we've got a lot of people that'll come in and they'll have dinner, but they're like, can we get something to go to? Well, if they're dining there, yeah, I'll, we'll do something to go. Or people say, they'll call up and say, do you have just a pinch of saffron? I'm trying to make risotto. Or do you have any risotto? That, I'm like, sure, come on over and go to the back door. I'll, I'll have it ready for you. So it's just kind of keeping it easy that way for people. They don't have to go to the store. They can just come to us and get what they need. I think that's one thing I know Max and I have talked about is that, like, everyone – loves food maybe not loves it but everyone likes and needs food and it just brings right. all walks of life together and like people that we probably would never expect to talk to come into your restaurant and now they're regulars there i love yep. that aspect yeah i mean that, that's it, it's a social aspect definitely and i think that's one of the things we really tried to do it was funny when we first opened we weren't sure how busy we were going to be we thought we'd have a soft opening we never had a soft opening it's like the day we opened the doors it was just packed and it got to the point where we were using a reservation system, but we were reserving every seat in the house because we didn't know. Now, and I think about six months in, we decided, okay, we're only going to reserve the tables and we'll leave the counter open for anybody that wants to just walk in. The problem with the counter seats is people walk in and they want to stay there all night. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's good and bad. Yeah. But now a lot of the regulars, they've instead of staying there all night, they'll come in later in the evening and then stay till we're closed and we'll hang out and chit chat. And so, I mean, we've made a lot of good friends with the restaurant. That's great. What do you think? Rapid fire? Yeah. I think think it's about where we're at. Yeah. Uh Oh, see how it goes. All right. The first one is what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? Mac and cheese. 
like out of the box. Mac and, mac and cheese out of the box. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. The man who owns a Caccio restaurant wants Kraft mac and cheese. I love it. It's it's simple. It's satisfying. It brings you back to childhood. I totally get it. I've made mac and cheese multiple times. Yeah. I've eaten the remainders of mac and cheese many a time. Yep. <laughs> uh, say it is a Monday or Tuesday night, like Hawks. Like, Where would you and your wife go in Sacramento? A nice night, easy night off. So, like, Hawks last night, we always love pizza, too. So I was trying to find a good pizza place. Um, unfortunately, Masulo's is usually closed Mondays, too. One speed was open. Now they're closed. So it's like we try and dine places we haven't been before. Mm-hmm. That's one thing we always try and do. It just could becomes more and more difficult with the When state. you're actually off. Yeah, when we're off in the way that things are now because people are trying to find more of a work-life balance. And I think... COVID was great in the fact that it allowed restaurants to reset themselves as opposed to having to cater to everyone's whims. You can kind of redictate how you're going to run your own business. So, yeah, I think especially if you survived, because if you could survive what COVID threw at you, then you can probably survive saying like, maybe we can do five nights a week or in yeah. your case, four nights a week. What would you go back in time and eat as a kid that your family cooked for you? Swedish meatballs or beef stroganoff. Those were two of the big things my parents cooked quite a bit of. Mm. And always just, I know it sounds funny, Swedish meatballs. It's like they're just meatballs with gravy on it, but the noodles. And my dad, he used to cook uh, schnitzel and spatzel a lot too. Loved that. What cooking shows do you watch or are you watching right now? Um, Actually, it's a lot of... Taste made on Samsung TV. It's either Taste Made or Taste Made Travel. They're not necessarily cooking shows, although there there was one the last the other night that caught mine and my wife's eyes, and now I can't even remember what it was called. But it was like destination. This one was in San Francisco. They interviewed I think two or three chefs in San Francisco on how they were trying to basically make people's preconceived notions of the China, like this one was a Chinese cuisine of the preconceived notion of it being just cheap, greasy food to elevate it to a higher cuisine. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting and things like that, as opposed to just watching, you know, the challenge shows. Right. You mentioned you devoured a lot of cookbooks when you were first working in restaurants, how to cook. Is there one cookbook that you would tell people you definitely need to have this one? Well, it depends on what kind of food you're looking at. I mean, Italian. We'll go Italian for, then. For, I mean, I looked at a lot of. I read a lot of the Japanese cookbooks. Mm. They're not necessarily strictly Italian, but they're more that Cal Italian. But they do give a good history, especially the ones with Paul Bertoli, a good history on the ingredients and why they were used in Italian food. Is there a favorite food movie or TV show? Not like a reality show, the but Big one. Night. The Big Night. Somebody else mentioned that too. I don't even know that one. I can't remember who it was. Stanley Tucci. That's um, Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub, uh-huh. that one. And Mark Anthony, Jennifer Lopez's ex. He's the little busser. Oh, no way. Uh-huh. I'll have to go I don't know that one at all. It's a great movie. They're two Italian brothers, and they're like... I think Isabella Rosalini's in it also. One's front of house, one's the chef. The chef is like... <clears throat> Very eccentric, and we're gonna like people are gonna eat what I want them to eat. And his brother is like, we kind of need to give people what they want. It's like that. Yeah, yeah. kind of need to sell the food. Italian yeah. brothers yelling at each other. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a hilarious movie, <laughs> and the build up to this huge masterpiece dinner that he ends up doing. He ends up doing making this timpano, which is like 
three feet tall and three feet, it looks just like a huge drum of pasta that's filled and nobody shows up to dinner. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And, it, and you're just like, but it's a great movie. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. I got time. All right, you do. <laughs> Jonathan Kirksick, thank you so much for coming on the Dine One Six. It's a pleasure to have you. And I haven't been to Caccio. I can't wait to go. Neil, for what it's worth, before he got here, said kind of quietly under his breath, said, like, I, I think it's the best Italian food in Sacramento. Right? <laughs> so not that he was embarrassed to say it, but he was like, you know. It's, I went there. It's a bold I, statement. I, I think so, we do a decent job. Yeah. I think you're underselling it. Well, <laughs> that's one thing. I'm I'm not that chef that's like, call me chef. I'm always like, right. no, I'm just a cook. Yeah. That was one of the things eating there that I did love, and you mentioned it earlier about the intimacy, but, like, you felt like your whole restaurant feels like the kitchen. I mean mm -hmm. that in a good way. Like, it was yeah. fun to look back and see you tossing pans, getting that, tossing that out. All right, this is for 32, going back and doing things. It was fun to see and feel. Yeah, and there's actually there's times where I actually get to run food. Which doesn't always make me that happy because I'm like, I got four more tickets back there, but right. I gotta run this out. So then I get stuck out in the dining room talking to people, but yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's like you're making food in your own kitchen and serving it in your dining room. It's a bunch you're inviting of people yeah, into your it, home. It's, it's, that's, that's what we wanted it to be is like, we wanted it to be a dining experience like you were at our house. Yeah. Kind of thing. Those are the best. Those are my favorite. That's, we're all, that's why we're all connected to food for most of us, is yeah. that that's where it starts. So. Right on. Well, thanks for being here. It was great to have you. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode of the Dine One Six. I really enjoyed this talk with Jonathan. I love that he's just no BS, no frills. He just wants to cook what he wants to cook, which is really good, simple food. It's almost off the beaten path. It's not in one of the hottest spots in town. It's close to his house. It's what he and Katie want. And it's like they get to have their friends over for dinner only four nights a week, not five, not six, not seven, four, and only three lunches a week for just a couple hours. And I love that. I loved how they've carved out a life for themselves in their restaurant. And it's not like they don't have recognition. I mean, they're in the top 50 restaurants in the Sacramento Bee. And I think they were put there by the customers, by the readers, who said Caccio's got to be on this list. Well, if you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Rate and review us if you can. But most, most, most importantly, we're a local podcast, so send this to someone in the Sacramento area who wants to hear about restaurants and food in Sacramento. Send it to friends that you have. Have them listen. That's going to be the best way for us to grow our show. Follow us on social media at Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at Dine16. You can also hear these podcasts on YouTube now if that's where you like to listen to your podcasts, as well as all regular podcast platforms. If you have any ideas for future guests or topics for the show, reach out to me via email. That's going to be at max at dine16.com. Our opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. And the Dine 16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Sacramento. Next week, we're going to shift gears and talk with Chris Sinclair, bartender extraordinaire, I just realized that rhymes and sounds a little silly, but I'm going to leave it in there anyway because Neil's not here to tell me that sounds terrible and too corny. But that said, Chris is the owner of The Good Bottle. He's the part owner of the new spot, also in the pocket, called Bodega, that serves their take on Caribbean and Puerto Rican cuisine. And he was the head bartender at Red Rabbit back when they were really putting Sacramento on the map. Until then, as always, eat something you love with someone you love.